0: Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast and this week we have a bunch of stuff. First we have a release for everyone of Photoshop on the web which might open the doors to more Linux adoption. We have the release of Linux Mint's Debian Edition 6 in stable and we have some more updates to the Cosmic Desktop Environment plus some updates to the NVK NVIDIA open source driver, the Raspberry Pi 5 being announced, a retrospective on Linux app stores, and the work we still have to do, and a bunch more, including some gaming news with SteamVR 2. So as always, all the links I use to make this show are in the show notes, all the links to support the podcast are in the show notes as well. So let's get started. So to begin with, we've got the release of Linux Mint Debian Edition 6 after a relatively short beta period, I think it was like two weeks or something, it's really short. So Linux Mint Debian Edition, if you don't know, is Linux Mint but based on Debian, which you probably could have guessed. Uh, The default Linux Mint is based on Ubuntu, generally the latest Ubuntu LTS. But since Mint does tend to remove most of what makes Ubuntu Ubuntu, Uh, Including all the snaps, all the customizations to the GNOME desktop environment and the whole GNOME desktop environment as well. Uh, And they replace that with their own applications, their own Cinnamon desktop or they have a Mate and XFC variant as well. Uh, And they remove snaps and they repackage stuff that is only available as snaps on Ubuntu. So basically they don't want to use Ubuntu as their base because they don't quite like it. But moving to Debian fully has a set of problems. So for now, what they do is they have the normal edition of Mint, which is based on Ubuntu, and the Linux Mint Debian Edition one, which is sort of their safety net, basically. If at some point Ubuntu decides that they're going to do something that Mint really disagrees and that Mint cannot go around, then they have Linux Mint Debian Edition, which offers the exact same experience with with a base that they have less work to, to, to do on. Uh, so yeah, you get now Linux Mint Debian Edition 6. It's based on Debian 12 Bookworm, which means that the stuff that's in Debian's repos or, or Linux Mint Debian Edition's repos right now might be actually newer than the stuff that's in normal Ubuntu-based Linux Mint. Because the Ubuntu-based version of Linux Mint is based on Ubuntu LTS 22.04. Stuff in the repos doesn't get feature updates, only security updates. And Bookworm released in 2023. So it's got one year of updates and features over uh, the usual uh, Ubuntu. Ubuntu does get around with that using Snaps, but since uh, Linux Mint doesn't and they use the repos, you might have a newer experience on Linux Mint Debian uh, Edition, at least for the apps and libraries in the repos, than what you might have on the regular version of Linux Mint, which I think is Linux Mint 21.2. Now, in terms of experience and distro, it is the exact same as the Ubuntu-based version. You still get Cinnamon 5.8, all the Mint apps, all the niceties, uh, the, the uh, accent colors, the theming options with, uh, how do they call them now? Uh, you've got these sort of like all-in-one profiles that change the whole theme of uh, of the distribution all at once without having to change the window manager, the GTK theme, the icon theme, the cursor theme. It's it's a great desktop, honestly. It's really good. Uh, now, for now, Linux Mint Debian Edition is still a side project uh, compared to the default Linux Mint edition, like Ubuntu-based edition. Uh, It's more of a thing that they want to have on the side in case Ubuntu disappeared or in case they really don't want to work with Ubuntu, but it still works really, really well. It's not because it's a side project that they are not paying attention to it. They're actually supporting it just as well as they're supporting the Ubuntu release, apart from the fact that Linux Mint Debian Edition does release a few months after uh, the regular edition. Uh, so, you can download the new ISO from Mint's website if you want a fresh install, but you can now also upgrade directly. If you were using Linux Mint uh, Debian Edition 5, you can upgrade to version 6 by running sudo apt update uh, and then sudo apt install mint upgrade, which basically will install the new Linux Mint upgrade tool. Uh, that's a new graphical tool that they released. Uh, I think it was from Mint 21.2, and it's gonna let you graphically update to a Linux Mint Debian Edition 6. They say it's a major update. It's going to take a while to apply because probably every single package of the distro will be updated, which is not the case when moving from Uh, major versions of uh, Ubuntu-based Mint to another one because they generally are still based on the same LTS release. Now you're moving, if you were using Linux Mint Debian Edition 5, you were on Debian 11, and now you're moving to Debian 12, which means that virtually every single package of your install will get an update. So it's going to take a while. Uh, Don't interrupt it while it's running or you're going to have some dependency problems. Uh, And don't start that at the beginning of your workday unless you want to have a nice excuse uh, to not get any work done. Because, well, if Windows users can use that excuse that they have an update and their system rebooted, uh, maybe we can too on Linux. Now, this week, Adobe also released uh, the final version, well, the final, a stable version of Photoshop on the web. It actually released that a while ago, uh, two years ago, I think. But it was in beta. It was limited to certain countries. Not everyone could access it. Uh, It wasn't as featureful as it could be right now. Uh, So it's an interesting thing to see because, well, a lot of people cite the absence of Photoshop as one of the main reasons why they can't switch to Linux. And so having a version that runs on the web and thus is completely operating system agnostic is pretty important, I think. Uh, Having a web version of Photoshop means that you could use Linux and run Photoshop in your web browser instead of having to have a Windows VM that will perform poorly or dual boot or just stick to Windows or Mac OS instead of using Linux. Uh, Which is why I'm mentioning this here, because it could be a big thing for Linux adoption. Now, there are a bunch of caveats. This Photoshop on the web thing is not the full Photoshop experience. It does come with a lot of Photoshop's cool tools including the most recent AI-powered Generative Fill and Generative Expand which lets you, well, automatically fill in parts of an image uh, by detecting the background and replicating it or expanding it with the Generative Expand thing so you could increase the size of the image by automatically generating more of the same image. It does have the ability to automatically remove the background of an image to use a spot healing to remove certain people, for example, if you're on the beach and you don't want the people walking in the background, you can remove them. Uh, It also supports, obviously, layers, so you can get the experience you're used to. But it does lack a few important tools. Uh, The pen tool isn't there. The patch tool isn't there either. Uh, Polygonal lasso selection isn't there either. Smart object isn't there. So it's not a full version of Photoshop. Uh, You can't completely replace uh, the native locally installed clients uh, of Photoshop with this thing if you use all Photoshop's features which admittedly probably isn't most people. Uh, Adobe said some of these tools are coming soon so the ones I I talked about the pen tool, the polygonal lasso, the patch tool smart objects they said they're coming soon to Photoshop on the web so it does look like Adobe wants to expand the feature set of this app on the web. It looks like They don't want it to just be some kind of Photoshop lite on your web browser to sort of sometimes edit a few things. They want it to be a full tool, apparently. Uh, That's what I gather from it. Uh, Which is a good sign that maybe at some point Adobe will transition Photoshop to being web browser-based, which would be a boon for Linux and probably a boon for Adobe as well because instead of having to maintain a Windows version of the client, a macOS version of the client, and maybe some iPad and iOS tools that are light versions. They could just have one adaptive web app that works on every single system. You can still take advantage of your hardware because browsers can use uh, WebGL and stuff like that to use the GPU and to use all the power of your system. It can sync Obviously, with your Creative Cloud, because that's a web app, so that works. They could provide an installable client for offline work as well. Like it it works. It's a good solution for an app such as this that wants to be cross-platform. Like web apps are a good solution for cross-platform stuff. And since Photoshop already doesn't follow any of the human interface guidelines of Windows or Mac OS, then they probably don't care about shipping a web app. And for Linux, it means we would finally get a solid client for Photoshop. Now, granted, people actually sometimes want the full Adobe Suite, which this is not, uh, but it could still be cool. Uh, Now, the caveat is also that it still requires a Creative Cloud subscription. While it's not the full fat Photoshop, it's still a powerful version of it. It's not free to play. You can't access it for free and then pay for the full client. Uh, You do have to have a Creative Cloud subscription to use it. Uh, but it also looks like it can open full PSD files because one of the use cases uh, Adobe promotes is to start editing your file on your computer. And then, for example, you're moving at you're back at home, your client has a few final edits. You want to tackle them right now, but you don't have Photoshop on your home PC. Well, you can do that on the web. the small edits, like changing the text here and there or or changing the position of of like something on the image, you can still do it. Uh, on the web so it can open full psd files it just doesn't have all the tools to modify all the features that might be in these psds for now so i don't think it's a stretch to imagine that the web version of photoshop might someday be as feature complete as the locally installed one and might even become the default version of photoshop so i just wanted to mention it here because i think it's it's an important thing for Linux to get access to these apps and a web-based version is obviously accessible on Linux as well. And now it's time to tell you about this episode sponsor, which is, as always, Thunderbird. So you probably already know Thunderbird. It's an open source email, calendar, contacts, tasks, RSS, and chat client. It does virtually everything related to your personal information. If you use Outlook, you know what type of application Thunderbird is. It's the same thing, but it's open source. It's available on Linux, macOS, and Windows. Soon they will have an Android client as well. And work also started on an iOS app. So it's really going to cover all platforms. And if you used it in the past, maybe the interface wasn't to your liking. But they, they released a new version uh, called Supernova, which is version 115. Very recently, it's already available on most distros and on Flathub uh, for Linux. And it's a complete revamp of how it looks. And it looks now absolutely perfect. You can completely customize the interface. You can put any button you want in the header bar for every view. So you can have different buttons for the mail view, then for the calendar view, then for the contacts view. The interface is completely modifiable. You can place the preview panel for email where you want. You can uh, get rid of certain panels and options. If you want to declutter the interface, you can change the interface density to have more or less information in the same space. You decide how it looks and how it works. It has access to a bunch of extensions to support a lot more stuff. It's a really, really powerful app, but it doesn't look messy or cluttered, or it can if you prefer it that way. Uh, It's the application that I now use to handle all my email, all my calendar stuff, all my contacts. It's plugged into my Nextcloud account as well uh, and my own self-hosted email. It's really Really good. So I left a link to download Thunderbird in the description of this podcast, in the show notes. And uh, I encourage you to give it a shot if you haven't yet or if you tried it in the past and it wasn't to your liking. It has changed a lot and it is really, really good these days. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Cosmic, which is, if you don't know, the desktop environment that will land in Pop!OS in the future. Uh, Their current desktop environment, which is basically GNOME with extensions, is also called Cosmic, but this new one uh, is written with Rust and will be their default once it's ready. And so they publish a monthly blog post about their progress and it's looking pretty damn good. Uh, Apparently, the Cosmic dev team now uses it daily which might indicate that it's relatively close to seeing a first beta for people to try out maybe directly on popos maybe like installable uh, as a specific packaging format for testing it out on another distro whatever it's probably close to a first beta because if all the developers can now like dogfood it daily then it should be pretty close. They're also saying that they're now onto the step where they add quality of life updates to the default applications, which means that the bases are already in place, which is uh, pretty encouraging. Uh, So this month they revealed what they called swap mode, which is another way of interacting with your windows when you're using the auto-tiling features of Pop! OS, because you can just click a button or hit a shortcut and move from floating windows, which is what everyone knows, to automatic tiling, and then you can have a purely keyboard-based workflow or still use your mouse if you prefer. So this new swap mode, you basically press Super plus X and you hold it until your window gets a special highlight. And then using the arrow keys, you can just move that window to another slot in the tiled windows grid and it's gonna swap its position and its size and dimensions with the window that you highlighted. This is more keyboard interaction, but in a visual way. Like if you use Tiling Window Manager, sometimes you get the feeling that everything happens immediately, which some people might like. But in terms of legibility and to get into it, it's pretty hard to understand because stuff just moves around and resizes relatively randomly. You're not exactly sure what you did if you're not 100% confident using that thing. So having a dedicated mode with highlights and window movement is actually a lot more legible. And I think System76 are doing a very, very good job uh, with all of this. Now, they're also working on text inputs and search fields to finally have, like, well, inline typing in various apps and settings and stuff like that. So they've implemented all of that, complete with symbolic icons that will match uh, your accent color and your styling that you've set in Cosmic. If you followed Cosmic development, you know that they have Some kind of material you, the the thing that you have on Android where you pick an accent color, but you can also style all the other colors of your apps based on that accent color. Uh, So you can have like muted pastel color backgrounds. I personally find it looks horrible because the colors are really not contrasted enough. And and it's just not legible. It kind of hurts my head, but I know a lot of people like it. Uh, And so, apparently the symbolic icons will use your accent color as well to add this little personalization touch, which is really nice, and should guarantee relatively good legibility instead of having pure white or pure black on any other color. They're also implementing touchpad gestures uh, in the apps, well, in their widget library and app creation toolkit, but also in the desktop. So, for example, apps will be able to support pinch to zoom uh, when you want to view an image, Or you can navigate the desktop using a touchpad or a touchscreen as well, which is really nice because touchpad gestures are a mandatory thing. They have to be one-to-one and they have to be in the system for people who use laptops because without them, you lose 20% of the system usability for a lot of people. So yeah, it's good to have them. Those numbers are completely random and yes, I'm just a gesture fanboy, but yes, you do need gestures on your system. They're an integral part of being efficient on a laptop if you don't just use the keyboard. And they also revealed a bunch of stuff about the dock and the panel settings, which confirm the fact that Cosmic will indeed be very customizable, because you will be able to change the dock and the top panel's positions, you can adjust their size, you can adjust their opacity, their margins between elements, Uh, you can toggle them in light or dark mode, and they both can have auto-hide if you want that as well, And you'll also be able to hide or show various applets from the top panel if some of them you don't want to show. Just like in KDE, in the notification tray you can uncheck some and say you, you you never want to see those. Well, you'll be able to do that in Cosmic as well. So they show a bunch of various layouts where you could have, for example, the top panel on the left side of the screen and the dock at the bottom. Or the dock on the right and the panel on the left. Or the dock on the top and the and the top bar on the bottom. Whatever, you, you decide how you want to use your desktop. And I think it's really cool. You can have one in light mode, the other in dark mode. Uh, it looks good. It looks like they have floating panel support as well. Uh, yeah, it looks really nice. And it's a bit reassuring as well. Because with these options and what they're working on, it looks like it's not going to be just another GNOME re-implementation, but redeveloped from the ground up. It has a lot more than just Gnome Plus extensions. It's going to look pretty well integrated. The only usual problem I have with it is, yes, you do have your own style and your own theming, but will it apply to other applications? Because if only the settings and the panels and the dock and the launcher have the same style, but every single app you use apart from that looks like a Libid app or a KDE app, then it's not going to be great. So I hope they find a solution around that, but yeah, I can't wait to get my hands on a, let's say, a stable beta, even though that's not really possible, uh, but, but at least on a beta and take it for a spin and look at how it works because, yeah, it looks like they are doing really awesome work on this and I can't wait to use it. And now we're gonna talk about drivers. We have some news about the open source NVIDIA Vulkan driver called NVK. Uh, with more work being planned uh, to land in MESA 23.3. So not the version that just released today, which I'll talk about in an instant, uh, in a minute, uh, but the version that will come after that. Uh, And the main focus of this work has been pipeline caching support. If you don't know what that is, it's basically related to shader compilation. Uh, When you're using Vulkan, you have to compile Vulkan shaders, And this compilation tasks are put in a pipeline to just say, okay, this is what we have to compile, uh, do them in order. It's basically a queue uh, that can be multi-threaded to compile the various shaders. And until the shaders are compiled, your game might be very stuttery, might not look great. Uh, So having support for pipeline caching means that you will get way better performance and way less stutters in games when using the NVK open source driver. And so this should combine very nicely with the recent work that was done on the novo nvidia driver uh, which enabled reclocking on various nvidia gpus so this means that nvidia gpus will not be stuck well when using the open source driver at least will not be stuck to the clock speed that is set when they boot which is really really low they will be able to access the full clock speeds of the gpu and the vulkan driver that builds on top of that kernel driver is now more efficient as well. So the combination of the two should start to provide a decent experience for people who really want to use an open source stack for their NVIDIA GPU, even though this will still not make this stack competitive with the proprietary driver just yet. It's far from being done, but it's gonna start to look like it can provide a decent experience. Now we also got the release of Mesa 23.2.1, because 23.2 was accidentally published before it was really ready, so they had to publish a .1 uh, to actually publish the .0 version with all fixes. But it, it, it's weird. Uh, so it brings a bunch of improvements to, well, most of the open source graphics drivers, because that's what MESA is. Uh, they now enable ray tracing by default. Well, ray tracing support is now enabled by default on AMD GPUs for RDNA 2 and 3 architectures, So probably uh, AMD GPUs from the 6000 and 7000 series and some AMD APUs as well, I guess. Uh, There's uh, the Rust ICL OpenCL implementation, which should work now much better. And I think hopefully uh, it might mean that DaVinci Resolve and other proprietary programs that depend on OpenCL might be easier to run on AMD GPUs in the future. That's just my personal hope, not, not a fact. Uh, there's a much better Zinc driver, uh, Zinc being something that brings OpenGL support to devices that only have a Vulkan driver. It's basically a translation layer from Vulkan to, to OpenGL, uh, so that's also pretty cool. There's the new OpenGL driver from the Azaki Linux developers, which means that there's now graphical acceleration and GPU support uh, in the mainline MESA drivers for Apple Silicon GPUs, integrated GPUs, which is nice. There's H.265 decoding for Intel through Vulkan. And there's the usual bunch of Vulkan extensions added, including a few that should improve uh, the gaming on Linux experience. So that's really, really nice. So it's good to see some solid driver updates on Linux. As always, you will have to wait for your Linux distro to ship all of these updates to you. Or maybe if you use a a PPA or a specific repo to get more up-to-date drivers, you might get that relatively soon but obviously use that as your own risk because, well, it's drivers, so you shouldn't mess around with that if you don't know what you're doing. And since we're on the topic of GPUs, it looks like virtually all GPUs are vulnerable to a weird Chrome-slash-Chromium-based browsers-plus-GPU combo uh, for an attack method. In short, malicious websites can read the usernames, the passwords, and other data displayed by other websites by simply reading the pixels that were displayed on screen and compressed using the GPU. They can uncompress these, reconstruct these pixels into an image, and identify the text that's been written there. So this has to have a few steps to happen. First, it only works on Chrome, Edge, and I would assume all other Chromium-based browsers, Firefox and Safari, don't work in the same way, and so they don't seem vulnerable to this attack just yet. So you have to use a Chromium-based browser. Then the malicious website just has to display an iframe, which is basically a website inside their own website, and since modern GPUs will try and compress the content of uh, the iframe to save bandwidth and to save performance, to improve performance, then this compression data can be accessed and read by the malicious website. They can grab these images, they can reverse engineer the compression algorithm and reconstruct the image to display what's actually displayed. So for example, you could have a malicious website that loads an iframe for, I don't know, your, your banking account and your web browser will autofill certain information or they could just load your Google account and, or, or a Google login window and the browser would autofill some of your information. And then they can just copy the image and read that using OCR and identify your username, your password, your email address, uh, your, I don't know, your bank login, whatever else. Now, the attack does seem to take a while to actually render anything usable, uh, sometimes like a, a few hundred minutes and attackers have to reverse engineer every compression method that each GPU vendor uses because they all use their own proprietary algorithms uh, to do that. Most people seem to feel that it's not a big threat yet, and Google said that they didn't have any plans to change how their browser works, so it might become a threat in the future. Uh, Basically, GPU vendors say it's not a driver or GPU problem. It's the fact that the web browser should not have access to this compressed data and they they should secure that. Uh, So the website that loads the iframe should not have access to that. And Chrome says, it's not a big deal. We're... Don't plan to fix this. We have no plans to fix this uh, uh, anytime soon. So I'm sure this will not cause any problem whatsoever in the future that no one wants to acknowledge the problem. uh, Because yes, it's just reading some text data, which might not be enormous because, well, passwords are generally not typed in clear text in those fields. They're like little dots or little asterisks or whatever. But there's a lot more information that could be accessed through that and it could also be another access vector for other sensible data. So that's pretty crappy and I hope they still manage to to drop a fix for that because while the conditions to suffer this attack are relatively uncommon, they can still happen. Now, if you're a fan of single board computers like the Raspberry Pi and others, you might be happy to learn that the Raspberry Pi 5 has now been announced and is now available for pre-order, and it looks pretty damn powerful for what it is and for the price. Uh, It obviously follows in the footsteps of all Raspberry Pi devices, which are single board computers, really small, uh, provided as-is without a case, You can mod them and add various things to either turn them into small servers, into a desktop PC, or into various appliances to control your smart home or do a media center or whatever else you want. It's a small computer that runs an ARM chip, basically. Uh, So the Pi 4 was released four years ago, and this Pi 5 is stated to be two to three times faster than its predecessor, which is pretty impressive because it's going to cost 60 US dollars for the base model with 4 gigs of RAM and 80 US dollars for the 8 gigs model. So it's a really affordable small computer. Now what's interesting this time is that they're using their own CPU design. Uh, They specifically contracted a manufacturer to design a specific CPU for the Raspberry Pi. It's still an ARM-based CPU. It's based on a Broadcom platform and it's got four cores running at 2.4 gigahertz. And for the GPU, they've got a Video Core 7, which seems like it's capable of 4K60 decoding, so really good for a media center. Uh, and of course, the Raspberry Pi can have 4 or 8 gigs of RAM. It now supports uh, power over Ethernet as well, which means you don't have to plug it into a socket. If you plug in through internet, through Ethernet, sorry, uh, you can also have power delivered through that. And it also has Wi-Fi, AC and Bluetooth 5, so it's suitable for a lot of various use cases and environments. In terms of I.O., it has two micro HDMI ports that both support up to 4K60 output, and it also supports HDR, which, again, very good for a media center. Now, the more powerful Pi 5 also comes with a recommendation from the manufacturer, which is you should use a case with active cooling with it, because since it's a lot more powerful, it might also run hotter, and so if you want the best performance and you want to ensure it doesn't fry itself, you should definitely add a fan to it. So as I said, it's already available for pre-order at 60 US dollars for the 4GB model, 80 US dollars for the 8GB model, and it actually looks pretty decent even for a day-to-day personal computer. And I know some people already use Raspberry Pis for their PCs, uh, for the desktop PCs, they had at some point this kind of keyboard case where you slotted your Raspberry Pi in there, and basically your keyboard became your entire computer. Uh, but it, judging from what I could see from various videos and reviews, it was not really usable as a day-to-day computer for a lot of people. Like It chugged a lot, uh, even for just basic web browsing, uh, video playback. It didn't seem very smooth. Uh, and if you just browse the web, maybe. But if you were trying to do two or three things at once, it really did not look like it was good enough. This one at two or three times the performance, uh, support for 4K, 60fps, I don't know, it, it, well 40 hertz because you're obviously never going to play a game at 60fps on this thing, I don't know, it looks like it's going to be a very solid computer and it might finally be usable as a day-to-day computer for at least more people than the fringe set of users that used it as a desktop before. Now, this week I also happened upon a very interesting blog post from Alan Pope, which you might know from uh, his previous work at Canonical. He worked on uh, Snaps and Snap packaging, and he's talking about app stores on Linux. And don't worry, he's not a Snap fanboy or shill. Uh, He's actually said very publicly recently that he has uninstalled. He still uses Ubuntu, but he uninstalled uh, Snapd. Uh, he's very critical of, uh, well, he can be very critical of snaps these days, uh, so he's not a shill or anything. Uh, he's gonna he, he talks in this blog post about app stores on Linux, and mainly the lack of one single full-featured app store. Because, yes, we do have Flathub, and West we yes, we do have the snap store, and yes, we do have 20,000 million distro repos. But none of them are full app stores, because, well, they are not stores. Uh, You can't distribute or buy a paid app on any of these. Uh, As he points out, there's still no option for that. For a developer to publish a paid app, whether it's a single payment, an in-app purchase, a subscription, none of that. And people just cannot purchase this. And while we do have those big two entry points, the Snap Store and FlatHub, and the Snap Store has started some work on enabling paid apps and FlatHub has some plans, enable paid apps in the future as well, for now the only one who does have this support is the elementary OS app center, but let's be honest this is not the most popular distro out there, so yeah the fact that they do it shows that it can be done, but for now a developer would not really be able to make a living wage just off of elementary OS alone. Now Alan explains the various tests and history that were already put in place to try and handle that use case, notably by Ubuntu as far back as I think uh, 2010 Uh, and you could at that point distribute a paid app in the ubuntu app store and users could buy apps from that app store but he also explains why that failed uh, notably because it relied on their packaging which is not ideal it's really hard and so canonical had to provide help for developers to actually package their apps because that's not as easy as you might think And also the review process at Canonical didn't really seem to be handled in the best of ways. Uh, There was a long queue, there weren't any dedicated people, it was extra work on other members of other teams, and the minimum price for an app was $5, which is way too high for a bunch of utilities that would have sold at 99 cents. It's just, yeah, it just wasn't handled well. And Alan also answers a few usual statements about that topic, because... Every time you talk about a Linux app store and paid apps, you get some people saying, we don't need those paid apps, uh, open source all the way. Well, as he says, first, open source can be paid. There's nothing incompatible here. Uh, It's actually pretty normal and the license absolutely authorizes it. And no, it's not unethical to ask for money for your open source app. And second, uh, we don't need proprietary apps, which is completely untrue because as he points out, the most downloaded apps, at least on the Snap Store, are proprietary. It's Chrome, it's Spotify, it's Discord, it's Edge, it's VS Code. So yeah, we do need proprietary apps, or at least a lot of people do and want them. There's also the argument of nobody will ever pay for apps on Linux, which is also very stupid because a lot of people buy games on Linux from Steam because they're easily available and they work. The Humble Bundle also has debunked time and time again, uh, that Linux users don't, don't pay because generally when they offer a pay what you want bundle Linux users pay more than any other operating system user uh, for the same games so it's untrue and uh, and and as long as you don't sell apps of course people don't buy apps but if you start selling apps people will buy them there's, there's just a reality of things uh, people buy what's available if nothing is available of course they don't buy it uh, but judging from the Steam Deck you're running Linux you're buying games because you know they're going to work same thing on Linux. If you have an app store where you can click buy and you know the app will run, then you're going to buy them. There's no no way around it. That's how the world works. So it's a very interesting read. It, it allowed me to, to remember and have some nice nostalgia about the old Ubuntu days uh, where they actually tried stuff on the desktop instead of just repackaging a few things and calling it a day. Uh, it, it was a nice time period where I was really hopeful that Ubuntu might be like the Trojan horse for the Linux desktop, where they had all the features that proprietary apps or proprietary OSs enjoyed. Uh, it didn't pan out, but maybe Flathub uh, or even the Snap Store, I hope Flathub, but maybe the Snap Store will be it, uh, will be this uh, this this open door for developers and for paid applications. Because yes, we do need uh, developers to be able to sell paid apps, if only for Microsoft Office, for Photoshop, for stuff like that. A lot of people would buy those if they were available, so uh, if you have the infrastructure, some apps will come, undoubtedly. Okay, and as usual, we're going to finish this podcast with the gaming news. Uh, So first, Counter-Strike 2 is now available from Valve, and this includes, of course, a Linux build, since it would be weird for Valve to not support their games on Linux, since they offer the Steam Deck, which uses SteamOS, which is Linux. Uh, So it runs using Vulkan, so you will need a Vulkan compatible GPU to play it. No super old Intel integrated GPUs, this is not CSGO. This is a new version, even though it might not look all that much better. Uh, It's still newer. Uh, The hardware requirements are really low. Uh, You need something like Ubuntu 20.04 or newer or any similarly semi-recent distro. Uh, You need a quad-core Intel i5 or equivalent from AMD or better. You need 8 gigs of RAM or more, a Radeon HD 7000 or newer, not not the recent uh, 7000 series, uh, an old HD 7000 or a GTX 600 from NVIDIA and newer. So it's very permissive and probably everyone should be able to run that uh, unless you run a Raspberry Pi. You also will need 85 gigs of storage because apparently games nowadays just don't know where to stop. Uh, Like Starfield, which is, I I don't know, 90 gigs. Baldur's Gate, 120 gigs. It's crazy the sizes of the games these days. But I guess it's okay. The terabytes aren't all that expensive these days. Uh, So as I said, you need a Vulcan compatible GPU. It apparently runs really well on the Steam Deck. Although whether you want to play Counter-Strike competitively using a controller setup and a Steam Deck, I'm not sure. Uh, but I'm sure for some casual play, it's fine. And apparently there were also a few bugs, uh, like Linux users not being able to see the smoke at a distance, which meant you had sort of a small wall hack. Uh, so this apparently is going to get fixed as well. Uh, so just wanted to mention that because, yeah, it's not often that we get a major AAA title with a native Linux version, so that's cool. Uh, now, this week we also have a nice new tool called Tux TuxClocker. Uh, well, I say new... They just got their 1.0 release, but it has existed uh, for a bit more time than that. Uh, what this does is it lets you overclock your NVIDIA GPU on Linux. It has a nice, cute-based graphical interface, and it lets you change the fan speed and the fan speed mode. It lets you change the memory clock, the core clock, and the power limit, so you can like squeeze out every single bit of performance out of your NVIDIA GPU. Now, unfortunately, the tool used to support AMD GPUs but now it doesn't for this 1.0 release because there were a few bugs it doesn't support intel gpus either for now but at least amd gpus should come later it supports nvidia gtx 600 and later and it also brings a dbus api so other tools could make use of that as well and i'm basically looking at various control centers uh, for example from linux manufacturers from slimbo or Tuxedo, because they do have Uh, these power profile modes and generally they do ship uh, some computers with nvidia gpus so if they integrated with that if it's stable enough and it works well it means that their performance mode could actually like put full power to the nvidia gpus and it would allow you to squeeze out every single bit of power uh, from a gpu you paid the big bucks for so that would be pretty cool if they could make use of that now, for people who want a gaming-focused Linux system, not just any distro, but a distro specifically tailored for gaming, there's now Chimera OS 44. It gives you a basically the same experience as SteamOS, but on any PC without the weird SteamOS kernel or anything like that. It also has its own stuff like Open Gamepad UI, which is basically an, an alternative front-end uh, to Steam Big Picture, so a controller-friendly, TV-friendly, interface to navigate all your games and this one is open source so contrary to the steam client and the big picture mode and it also has some new features like performance profiles per game and power tools for amd gpu controller support and stuff like that uh, camera os does use game scope which is the steam os compositor uh, with a bunch of fixes to not limit the default game resolution to 720p which is something game scope does because for now it's intended to be used on the Steam Deck, which 720p is fine on that. Uh, and they also have emulator support as well, baked in. Uh, they don't support NVIDIA GPUs anymore, apparently, because the proprietary drivers seem to cause too many problems. So just like something like Holo ISO, which is virtually a carbon copy of SteamOS with the exact same tools, you can't use that with an NVIDIA GPU. It's too problematic. Uh I don't know why Valve doesn't fix their interface and their GameScope compositor for NVIDIA GPUs. They might want to do that to actually have hardware partners uh, to, to sell SteamOS devices. I don't know, maybe it's more complicated than that. But still, Camera OS it does look like a cool alternative to something like Holo ISO. Uh, Holo ISO can be fiddly to set up, even though they improved that a lot. I actually had to reinstall my SteamOS console because I botched an update uh, to SteamOS. And this time I had to apply virtually... Zero changes to the default install. It picked the right kernel for me. I didn't have to select a power performance profile, something for my AMD GPU. Everything was supported immediately. So that was pretty cool. Uh, But yeah, Camera OS, good option as well. When I tried it, it did not support my Xbox controller. It didn't work out of the box when it did with Holo ISO. But maybe that's fixed now. Maybe that's just a me problem. And finally, on the gaming news, we have Steam VR 2.0, or at least its first beta. Uh, you can opt into it by uh, enabling the beta channel for the Steam client and the beta channel for Steam VR. And it comes with a brand new interface uh, that looks like basically the new Steam Deck and big picture mode, but it also integrates Steam chat, voice chat. It has a better store that puts the focus on VR games and it updated every nook and cranny of the interface to better reflect the current state of, of Steam in terms of a graphical UI. Uh... So it's very interesting, and it also does seem to confirm uh, that the new devices from Valve, whose codenames leaked a while ago, uh, it was Sephiroth, and uh, I don't quite remember the other one, uh, but there were two codenames leaked, uh, and people were speculating that at least one of them might have something to do with VR, and obviously, if they have a new version of Steam VR, they're probably planning to release some new hardware, because if they were just happy with the Valve Index and didn't care about VR anymore. They would not focus any development efforts on revamping the interface entirely, making a better store. That's steps you take when you want to sell VR-related stuff and they don't really seem to care about the Valve Index anymore, so they probably are working on a new device for Steam VR, which could be very exciting because now I finally have a PC capable of running VR games. I have a lot of space in my living room if I move my couch around. So it, I could be interested into a with a Steam VR headset with well, the whole Steam VR library, which seems to be relatively solid. So this could be interesting for me and if I decided if they release something and if it's not too expensive, and if I buy one, and if it works on a SteamOS based device like like my Linux console, then maybe I'll make a dedicated video out of it, but that's a lot of ifs. And so this will conclude this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, all the links I use to write this show and to record it are in the show notes. All the links to support the show and contribute to it are also in the show notes. And I also left a link to our sponsor, Thunderbird, because they make this podcast possible. Well, them and all the people that support the show on Patreon, Liberapay, and whatever else. So thank you all for listening, thank you all for contributing, and I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye!